Welcome to Behind the Buyouts, the deals podcast where we sit down with venture capitalists, private equity pros, and company executives to drill down into their capital raising transactions and acquisitions. I'm Steve Jelsey, senior writer at The Deal. Today, we're joined by Winston Song, managing director and co-head of consumer at Vestar Capital Partners, the New York-based private equity firm founded in 1988. Winston, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Steve. Great. So just by way of introduction, Winston Song has been at Vestar for nearly 15 years, and he's currently a director at Dr. Prager's, Simple Mills, Noni's Foods, and Presence Marketing. Vestar is a significant player with a long history in private equity, particularly in consumer food and beverage. So Winston, let's talk about your recent acquisition at Vestar. You led the deal for the firm to buy Dr. Prager's Sensible Foods. It's a maker of plant-based frozen and refrigerated foods such as veggie burgers made from simple ingredients. It's part of a trend in deal-making around better-for-you foods in the vein of Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, Oatly, oat milk, and other healthier choices. Can you give us some background on the investment? Yeah, sure. So I've been a Dr. Prager's consumer since my son probably first started eating solid food in 2015. If anyone needs to convince their kids to eat vegetables, the, the Littles products is phenomenal. So the company has been on our radar for a number of years. I think you mentioned it's in plant-based frozen and refrigerated foods, and the category has gotten a ton of buzz. And it's one of the few scale assets out there with scarcity value. You know, we had a lot of success in the frozen vegetable category historically with Birdseye and Del Monte. And we've just been following the categories. You noted, you, you mentioned some high-flying brands out there and, and the categories only picked up momentum over the last year. Private labels gotten big as well. Uh, Trader Joe's is a really awesome offering as well. Yeah. And so the category is definitely becoming more mainstream as more and more people are adopting kind of plant-based or are migrating more to a plant-based diet. What we do as investors is to parse through all that novelty and invest behind what we think are sustainable and enduring brand franchises that we think have broad shoulders. So there's a lot of newness in the category. And Prager's, however, was founded back in 1994 by Larry Prager's father and Eric Somberg. And they've been around for a long time. They've, um, they've got a really loyal consumer base, and they're known for having great tasting and nutritious products. As you mentioned, a powerful veggie forward brand promise, and their consumers are really loyal. It's a great brand, but it's got low, relatively low awareness outside of kind of the vegan and vegetarian community and outside of the coasts like New York and Boston or LA and San Francisco. So we think there's a lot that we can do here to really invest behind the brand, make the right investments in marketing and product innovation, bring more consumers to the brand, and then invest behind this virtual circle of once they're in their brand, they're going to stay there because they love the product. So we're really focused right now in the early days of really understanding the fundamentals of the brand here. So Larry Prager, who's the CEO, and and Adam Somberg, who's the son of Eric Somberg, the other founder, have done a really nice job building the brand, but they've done a lot of it by instinct and they've got really good instincts, but it's been underinvested. And there's a real opportunity to continue to professionalize the business, make the right choices in in marketing and figure out what the right categories are to take the brand. And uh, we think that there's a ton of opportunity here. So with Dr. Prager's, you, you said your, your kids were uh, you're eating the food already and you probably tasted some of it yourself. So you knew it was a good product. So how did you turn that into a deal? Yeah. So I met Larry a few years ago at Expo West, which is one of these big natural organic food trade shows. And you know we just developed a relationship over time. He liked what we had to say. And Vestar as a whole has a really strong consumer franchise. And we talked a lot about the bird's eye food story and what we did to transform that brand from a commodity frozen vegetable player to a real consumer brand that delivered 
and on products that executed on taste and convenience and really met consumer needs. And that kind of experience really resonated with him. He did take the company to market end of 2019, early 2020. But just given the relationship that we had with him over time, we were really able to differentiate ourselves in that sale process. So that's really interesting. And it's always great if you have a a successful deal under your belt with Birdseye. I mean, that's like a really good story for private equity where you took a brand that was a commodity and you made it interesting to people again and you revived it again. That's what private equity pros do a lot of the time. They find these overlooked companies and they find ways to get, get them going again and get the momentum going again. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's really what we look for when we invest in brands. There's a lot of different ways to invest in it, but our bread and butter has always been to find these underinvested brands that we think have a lot of potential and have really good leaders that just need more resources. Our mindset has always been really over-invest in marketing, really over-invest in product innovation. We'll challenge our management teams at all the board meetings to make sure that they're overly resourced and overly invested in all the kind of line items on the PL, whether it's product innovation, whether it's more sales resources, higher marketing budget. To get that working media up or on the supply chain to make sure they've got the capacity and the efficiencies to really expand. So that's that's our mindset. And a lot of these brands have a really good legacy and, and really good bones and they just need some additional capital. So Winston, walk us through your focus on better for you foods. Where did that term originate and how far back does it go? I mean, we've seen national food companies, uh, you know, Woody Allen's character in the movie Sleeper was a natural food supermarket owner in Greenwich Village. So the natural food business has been around for decades. What's different about the trend now? Yeah, so it's been around for a long time, right? Better for you food is not anything new and it's not a novel or creative term. Investor might have done the first kind of private equity investment in Better For You Food. We invested in Celestial Seasonings back in 1988, so well before my time. But that brand and that company has turned into a part of Better For You, our national organic behemoth that's saying Celestial. We've been doing this for a long time, but it's become a lot more mainstream now. You'll notice that formulations have really improved. You know, you compare like gluten-free 1.0, which was like 10 years ago, and you're basically eating some cardboard. And now you've got some great brands like Simple Mills, which is in our portfolio. Plant-based milk decades ago was basically soy milk. And now you, you mentioned Oatly and Calafia, and there's a lot of other great products out there. And they're taking it and bringing it to other dairy-based products like cheese or yogurt. And then you look at meat alternatives. Like a long time ago, it's probably, you know, different types of tofu. And, and now you've got these burgers that basically mimic the burger experience. And the rate and pace of change in food has created a lot more opportunity as well. So you've got diminishing barriers to entry because brands can access e-commerce and digital marketing. You've got third-party manufacturers, like we've invested in some that have made it a lot more easy for the brands to kind of scale up and get products to market. So there's just a lot more opportunities to invest than there have been in the past. That's interesting. I see. I definitely see a little parallels there with the software business because years ago, you had to have a whole mainframe computer to build software. And now you have people developing apps in their basement and, and becoming software companies. So it reminds me a little bit of that in some ways, because as you said, there are these things that are have been big, bigger barriers to market than they are now. So that's pretty interesting. And it's true. The other thing about it too, is that better for you foods, people always thought they'd have to taste bad, but now they don't have to taste bad anymore, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that, I mean, that's the brand promise of Prager's or Simple Mills and, you know, a couple of the companies in our portfolio. It's not only do you have to deliver on being better for you and having this brand promise of, you know, having better ingredients or better sourcing, but you also have to deliver on taste. There's just so many other options here and the consumers are demanding it. Okay. You mentioned the Simple Mills deal. You're on the board of directors for Simple Mills. Walk us through that deal and maybe the sourcing on it and what the opportunities are for Vestar. 
Yeah, so Simple Bills was another brand that we'd been tracking for a long time. And, and similar to Dr. Prager's, it was uh, one that I definitely taste tested with my kids a number of times. So we would always do their chocolate muffin mix on our rainy day because there's not a whole lot else to do in the city a lot of times on the weekends if it's pouring outside. And they love all things chocolate. So it went down pretty easily with them. <laughs> but Simple Mills was a client of, of another company of ours, Presence Marketing, which is the leading broker in the national organic space, which by and large is Whole Foods. And they've known Simple Mills and Caitlin, the founder, for a very, very long time. I mean, have a lot of respect for what she does and a lot of excitement for the brand. And you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is you know having an authentic founder story really matters in consumer. And Caitlin really created a brand and a, and a product that directly addressed the specific need that she had. There's a bunch of other articles out there about Caitlin and the origin stories of Simple Mills. But she was traveling on the road a lot, you know, wasn't eating as healthy as she wanted to, and she wanted to create something better. So when she was back home on the weekends, she rented out a commercial kitchen and you know, tested a lot of different products and created baking mixes. And from there, created crackers and, and had a really good innovation engine going. So it's just a brand that was really powerful and has a great story. And we had actually met Caitlin. Her and her early investors were, were looking through a monetization event. And when we talked to Caitlin about what she was looking for in a partner going forward and what her goals were for the transaction, she was talking to a couple of private investors, mostly who had portfolio companies. And we had met her through our portfolio company of ours as well. And she also met with some strategics. But when you talk to her about what her goals were, it was she wanted to find a partner that stayed true to the brand mission that would give her team, which was a really brilliant management team that she built, but would give them another bite at the apple or another chance to create value here. And then she wanted to try to keep her Chicago headquarters intact. Those goals to me were something that really fits with Vestar's DNA in terms of finding really talented founders and families to really invest behind and partner with and, and drive growth. And it just didn't seem like the right opportunity for her to, uh, or the right time for her to go after that strategic sale. Just reflecting back on those deals, it seems like Vestar may have been one of the first institutional investors in those companies. And, and, and can you talk about how important that is for a private equity firm to try to find these good families that own these companies or these entrepreneurs and working directly with them instead of maybe getting, the, you know, getting a company in, in a broad auction or something? Yeah, it's 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 become harder to do given how pervasive private equity is. But you know, partnering with families and founders is something that Vestar has always sought to do, and we're it's something that we're really proud of. So in our current portfolio, I think we've got eight portfolio companies where we are the first time institutional capital or outside capital that's been brought in. Some of these are seventy and ninety year old family run businesses. That's a stat that we're we're incredibly proud of. And a lot of that is just based on our mindset. You know, we've got a perspective about listening, collaborating and really respecting the culture of success that these families and founders have built, and also being flexible and kind of the strategy in our operational plans, right? We don't approach any investment with a one-size-fits-all playbook. Each kind of founder and family has their own goals. And you know, our mindset or our strategy is always trying to tailor an investment structure as well as a go-to-market around that. Winston, how did you get personally interested in Better For You Foods? And overall, what consumer trends are driving your investment decisions? Is, is it mostly about millennials and what they're doing since they're in that prime demographic for a lot of these products? Yeah. So we talk, I talked about it a little bit when we we're talking about Prager's and Simple Mills, but a lot of what we're, we're, a lot of how I've gotten interested in Better For You Food is, is just going from having no kids like seven or eight years ago to having two kids now. And you know, we're always trying to find new ways to feed them better. So that just leads me to walk the aisles and walk the shelves of a lot of different grocery stores and kind of just see what's on the shelf and, and kind of try new things. And 
reading the labels a little bit more carefully. And, you know, part of the other thing is I'm in Brooklyn, right? So everyone in general has a bent for it to be better for you. So you learn a lot just from ha- having conversations with people. I did have the opportunity to go to like Costco with a friend of mine during the pandemic. And he had a blast because I had some kind of comment or piece of trivia on literally every brand that was in there. But <laughs> it's just a, fa- it's a, it's a really fun space to be in. It's a it's really, it's tangible. Everyone understands, everyone kind of understands what I do for a living. So it's, it's pretty exciting. And then in terms of trends, I think what we're focused on here is always finding sustainable trends versus you know what we would call dietary fads. So parsing through all these different diets and finding common threads, right? So one of the areas where we are spending a lot of time on right now is no low sugar. And if you look through all the different diets that have come and gone or have been in vogue from Atkins all the way to the latest in keto, one of the commonalities is always let's cut out carbs and let's cut out sugar. And so that's one area where we spend a lot of time and there's been some interesting investments there. We're spending some time around changing consumer behavior trends. So as you noted during the pandemic, snacking at home is significantly up. Millennial household formation is something that we've been thinking through. So categories like frozen or baby food will certainly go up as, there, as there's millennial household formation. Um, and pets, another area where we're spending a lot of time. So over the last 10, 20 years or so, pets have been a constantly growing category because of humanization or premiumization, which means people are, have no bounds in terms of what they're willing to spend on their pets. You know, obviously during the pandemic, a real opportunity for volume increases, there's been as pet adoption rates basically increased by threefold. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your second part of your question, which is around millennials. So it's not just the millennials, right? But the consumer in general is just different now. We're, we're all demanding more from the products that we consume. So when we're all growing up, really brands were focused on convenience and taste. And those, those were the two attributes that they really needed to market against. And now brands need to push attributes that are more appropriately resonate with today's consumer, whether they're millennial or not. So people are much more focused on health and wellness. So do they feel good when they eat this product? Or, or do you feel good about yourself as a parent if you're feeding it to your children? Does the brand have purpose? Like, does the mission of the brand resonate with the consumer? So, you know, that's why the founder story is so important, or, you know, people care about where the ingredients come from. People would like products to be artisanal and not feel like they basically got mass produced in a big plant somewhere. And the last one's on, on values. Like, does the brand stand for something that I can get behind, right? Whether it's sustainability, all of those things really matter more to consumers these days than just, you know, does it taste good and does it, you know, I microwave it and, and get it to my kids in under five minutes. So Winston, just summarizing what things you were saying, it looks like Vestar is looking around for a pet product deal. Is, is that a fair thing to say that you might be looking around for, for something in that category? Well, we've invested in pet and we, we had a really great outcome there in, in our investment in Del Monte, which later became Big Heart Pet Brands. And we, uh, we sold it to Smucker. We we're always looking for opportunities in pet. It's an area where we've got a lot of domain expertise. Um, a lot of the same trends that you're seeing in, in uh, human food, you're seeing in pet food both on the branded side, as well as on the supply chain. So we think there's a lot of interesting opportunities for us to invest behind. You mentioned with more people eating at home, COVID has helped drive sales, both in better for you foods and prepared foods and baking. Can this popularity be maintained post COVID? In other words, this is definitely a trend I'm seeing is that people are starting to look past the lockdown a little bit. Uh, People are getting vaccinated. I don't think, you know, life is going to return completely to normal right away, but it seems to be heading in that direction. Uh, So how do you kind of prepare for that? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Steve. And and, and it's a question that we talk all the time about at at Investment Committee at Vestar. And you know, I don't think any of us really know what the impact of the new normal is going to look like. But what we are trying to do is strategically plan 
to have our portfolio companies really be able to to kind of tackle the new normal, right? So, like you mentioned, there's a, you know, who knows what the vaccination rollout is going to look like. There's definitely a lot of optimism out there. I'm pretty pumped myself. But there's also probably going to be a, a more permanent partial work from home culture as well. So there is going to be some element of home setting that's still going to go on past 2021. And we're all going to need to figure out exactly what those normalized levels look like. I, I can't tell you what that is now. But what we're working with all our management teams right now is 2020 was a was an unbelievable year for a number of these brands in terms of driving trial and increasing household penetration. And now the challenge for them is how do you keep these consumers in your franchise? How do you communicate with them? How do you figure out who they are? And how do you continue innovating to keep them excited about being in your franchise? And now that you've seen all the supply chain disruption that's happened in 2020, how do you plan for that going forward? So those are some of the areas that we're focused on right now. Good news here is that you know food broadly is a pretty diverse category, right? So as people stop consuming at home, you know we've got investments that that serve food service, and hopefully those will start picking up again because they they certainly had you know more challenging years over the last year. You know, in some categories like bars, which were completely based on convenience and on the go eating, did not have a very good year last year, and hopefully that's going to start picking up as kids start going back to school more frequently and people start going to work and commuting more often. So Winston, are you still able to find deals in the sector? We've got record prices in the equities market. We've got a red hot IPO market. It seems like it's a better environment for selling than buying. But when you do get into these competitive situations, well, let me just back up and just say, hey, is it better to be a buyer than a seller right now? How do you find deals? Yeah, I think what, what all of this has demonstrated uh, to me, at least is the, the overall resiliency of the food industry. Like if you look at where... Food and beverage stocks were trading, you know, pre-pandemic to where they are now. Their share prices are up over thirty percent. And you know, I wouldn't say the sector is broadly overvalued. There's certainly opportunities to monetize assets, and it's a good time to to be selling assets. But there's also an overall flight to quality here, right? So, which is what's really driving valuation, I think, because food has generally performed regardless of the overall economic environment. General businesses in our sector have performed extremely well over the past year. And so there continues to be a ton of opportunity to investment. It, the goal here is to find the trends that you think are sustainable and find the brands that you think have a really good story that you can invest behind. But just uh, like we mentioned before, it's, there's been a democratization of the consumer industry. And because the cost to build up a brand or communicate or market to your consumers or get products to market have come down, there's always going to be opportunities to find another brand to invest in. That's kind of exciting in a sense from a consumer's perspective, because that kind of means that we're going to be having a greater variety of food to choose from, you know, given the barriers to entry are a little bit less difficult than they used to be. But as a private equity firm, you have to go up against big folks like Unilever and other big companies, other big conglomerates, other big strategics. What does Vestar offer a better for you startup uh, that a food conglomerate can't offer? And what are Vestar's advantages? Sure. I think a couple of things to, to note here. I, I think strategics have also changed their acquisition strategies as well over the last few years. So scale really does matter to them, which creates more opportunity for private equity firms. In general, I think a number of strategics went on buying sprees over the last 5, 10 years, and, and they need to digest now. So they're being a lot more choiceful about where they're spending their time. And they probably would love to have a private equity firm come in and make some investments, um, professionalize a business and continue to kind of really build a vibrant brand franchise for them to buy several years down the line. And a lot of the smaller brands that they bought, they, I think they realized that they don't, just don't really move the needle for them. Like if you buy a company with 50 million of sales, that could be a great investment for a Vestar or some of the other firms that are out there, but it's not really going to move the needle for a Kraft Heinz or a PNG or whoever. Even if it goes great, you're really not going to get the revenues or earnings growth. So I think the 
the threshold and the opportunity for that where, where they're looking to play has gone up in size over the last few years. And then just in terms of Vestar, I think you know part of this is just who we are. We've been around for 30 years now, and we've done close to 90 investments in our history, and half of them have been in consumer. So we've got a really long legacy of investing in consumer, and we can point to a lot of familiar household names like a Bird's Eye Foods, Del Monte, more recently Simple Mills, and Dr. Prager's. And our goal, you know, as you develop the relationship to management, is to really get them to understand what our strategy is, and that's always to help them build a better company. So I mentioned it before, we're an investment-oriented firm. And it's not just about what the initial investment looks like and what the valuation looks like and what the structure of the equity or debt might be, but talking to the management team about where they want to make the investments in new product development and marketing, uh, sales resources are on the supply chain to really help drive growth and build that better company. And that's something that we talk about all the time. And we're not afraid to take earnings down in order to do that because we, we think the company will do better as a result of that and will all be paid handsomely on the back end. And we talked a little bit about our portfolio, but we invest across the value chain in consumers. So we create an ecosystem of assets that we deploy to help our branded companies scale. So we've got Presence, which is a sales broker, or IRI, which is a data and marketing services business. Um, We've invested in contract manufacturers and distribution businesses. So there's a lot of different companies out there where their sole reason to be on the B2B side of the consumer value chain is to help brand scale. So we've got this nice network that we can put to work. And the last thing we like to talk about is just we are really good with families and founders. And we always make our laundry list of investments that we've had with family and founder-run businesses available at the right time for all the founders to talk to. And it's not just investments that we've had tremendous successes, but there's been some investments that have taken a little bit more time and needed a little bit more work. And it's really when founders call those CEOs and those families where people really get to understand who Bestar is because it's... You know, when things are going great and people are growing 20, 30% a year, you, everyone's a good partner. But it's really in that one year where you don't hit your budget, where you have a raw material challenge, where you really find out how good your partner is. And that's, that's where we really differentiate ourselves. And what's the range of deals that Vestar is looking to do in terms of dollar? You, I, I guess you would be considered a middle market firm, but that's defined in a lot of different ways. Can you, any, yeah. can you put any dollar amounts around that or, or ranges around that? It varies. What we like to do is find investments where we've got really high conviction and we know we can add a lot of value here. So we've invested in companies that are as small as 40 to 50 million in sales. And then we've invested in some pretty big companies like IRI is a really big company out there. And we help recap it with another private equity firm and, and kind of partnered up. So our, our goal here is to you know, really use our industry knowledge and our industry expertise and our and our relationships to really help figure out ways to drive value here. And if it's um if it's an opportunity where we where we've got a lot of conviction on, we'll we'll figure out the right investment structure to go after. So any comment on private equity shift towards more diversity at portfolio companies and within their own ranks? That's been a, another trend as well with private equity. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Steve, for asking this question. I think it's long overdue, and it's something that we at Vestar have really coalesced behind over the past year. And we all recognize both as a firm and as individuals that it's definitely something that we should have been doing all along. I think there's a ton of research out there that shows diversity around the table leads to better outcomes and better returns. And you know, we at Vestar or just private equity firms in general, I think we, we control over 15,000 companies in the US. So we've got the ability and the responsibility to craft our boards, our management teams, and our firms to better reflect the demographics of today. But in consumer, I think it's actually even more important, right? Because 70 to 80% of purchase decisions in the US are made by women. 
There's a lot of data out there about the increased buying power and wealth of the African-American community, Asian-Americans, Latinx. They're all growing at a faster rate each year. So our investment team and, and our investment process needs to reflect that those perspectives and those experiences not only make smarter investments, but also to invest behind the right culturally intelligent marketing messages and giving, you know, giving the management teams that perspective. You know, there's a slate, you'll see it everywhere. There's, a, there's always a slate of, of consumer brands out there who are apologizing for one misstep or another. And hopefully we can help bring perspective to the boardroom for that. Investor working on any hiring to boost diversity or what are the firm's objectives on this front? We've implemented some practices where we brought in some third-party help as well. And it's something that we've worked on over time. It's a commitment that we have. We've certainly diversified our firm over the last couple of years, and there's definitely a lot more that we can be doing here. And we're definitely working with our portfolio companies on this as well. Some portfolio companies are much farther along than others. Some portfolio companies, candidly, are much farther along than Vestar. So there's a lot of mutual learning, but there's, it's a combination of just you know, being strategically committed to this and also bringing in the right outside help. So let's talk about some of your nonprofit work briefly. And you're a member of the board of the Brick Arts Media, the leading presenter of free cultural programming in Brooklyn. What's going on with your nonprofit work? Yeah, Brick is an awesome organization. The organization's goal is to use its platform to give Brooklyn its creative voice in visual, media, and performing arts. And they're looking to advance opportunities for artists. And they, you know, they present some pretty awesome work and they provide learning opportunities in the arts and the media for people of all ages in Brooklyn and, and across New York. And it's been a pretty interesting year because it's been a challenging year for a lot of arts institutions, right? A lot of those venues have been shut down for the year. Cultural workers and media workers and generally have been underserved in, in many of those recovery efforts. So Brick has been more focused this past year. Um, you know, they, they instituted something called the Creative Relief Fund, but it's really getting money and providing resources to help continue to support artists and, and content makers. I've been involved for several years now, and it's, it's just really interesting because it's it's given me an opportunity to apply what I've learned on my day job around a lot of things around marketing and strategy and budgeting and organizational development and, and really having an impact on, on an organization right here in my neighborhood. So I, I urge everyone to check out Brick's Instagram site, and they do a Celebrate Brooklyn Festival in the summers. Hopefully, they'll be able to do some version of that down in Prospect Park, but would urge everyone to try to check it out up there in New York. Well, Winston Song from Vestar, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Steve. This is Steve Jelsey with Behind the Buyouts. Thanks for joining us.